If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. We are going to look at two scenes, three characters, and we're going to see what God has to say to us. Two scenes, three characters. We're going to center around a concept, an idea um, that I'm really, really excited about. It has messed with me the last couple of uh, months in preparation for this teach, uh, but I hope, I hope that this will speak to you. Verse 18 says this, John's disciples, so this is J to the B, John the Baptist's disciples, told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, which is basically a retelling of Luke chapter 4. He says this, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Remember the jubilee of all jubilees we taught on that. He says this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then look how he ends it with this profound line, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Such a powerful, powerful text. So look at this. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, saying this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than just a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I want to stop here for, for a moment because I think there's something really, really powerful here. What we know from Luke chapter 3 is that John is in prison. So John's in prison, and he was the one who was the forerunner. He was going out, and he was basically preparing the way. He was trying to let everyone know that the Messiah is coming. But now, John actually finds himself in prison, and he begins to wonder, was he really the right one? And he can't seem to really get this thought, this nagging thought out of his mind. Is he really the guy? So he, so he has some of his disciples come. And in that time when you were in prison, the way that you got food was that you'd have to have people who would come and basically give you money or give you food. And so these disciples come and they're probably giving him food. And, and John just says, man, guys, I, I'm wrestling with this question that's deep within is Jesus really the way? Is he really the one? And then he has this genius idea. Go ask him. Go ask him. Go ask him, are you the one to come or should we be expecting someone else? It's such a profound question. If you're familiar with 
therapy or counseling, a great therapist will, will talk about expectations. And oftentimes they'll talk about three types of expectations. They'll talk about predictive expectation, which is basically where you, you kind of look at some kind of parts and pieces and, and a person can naturally predict, oh, this is actually going to lead to what I most desire and anticipate. There's also normative desire, which we all have this. A normative desire is when we see trash on the ground and we're walking, but there's someone in front of us and they see the trash on the ground. We actually have this normative expectation culturally that, oh, they should pick that up. But when they don't, then you're like, it's a violation of a normative expectation. In your work, you have some normative expectations of how you are to proceed and behave and be. And then there is this kind of deserved expectation. It's one of the most dangerous kinds of expectations. It's where actually you can't seem to differentiate between your anticipation and expectation and your desire. And what ends up happening is what you desire actually becomes something now that you now deserve. And you believe that you are entitled to this expectation because you desire it. And some of us, we have that. Oh, I desire that this thing should happen in my life. This person should like me. This person should do what I say. This person should. And all of a sudden, we just begin to transmit our shoulds onto some person or some situation. I don't think John the Baptist is wrestling with a normative expectation or a deserved expectation. I think, like many of us, he's wrestling with a predictive expectation. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Because if any of you wrestled with this, I did it right I did it right. Like I, I brought my kids to church, but now they're in their 20s and they don't go to church. And we started to find ourselves like wrestling. Like, are you the one to come? Or should we be expecting something else? For some of us, like, we're like, yeah, I, I did it right. Like, I did it right. I love that person so well. And they left. When you add up all the puzzle pieces and all the math, you think you should have a predictive expectation that this should be. And John the Baptist is here going, I am in prison. This is not the way it was supposed to go. We were supposed to overthrow Rome. The whole story of liberation from the Exodus, from Moses actually crossing the Red Sea, and Egypt, the superpower of the day, being dethroned, and the people having the promised land. This is what it's supposed to be, a moment of profound repentance across the land and the kingdom of God restored here on earth, not in some temple, but in the one true God. And why am I in prison? Why? Because it's not supposed to go this way. And if you've ever wrestled with this, then you exactly know what John the Baptist is dealing with. And you know what, you know what Jesus does? Jesus just throws back to Isaiah 61, to Luke chapter 4, and then just simply says to John's disciples, go tell him this. Blessed is the one who does not fall away or does not stumble on account of me. That is all John the Baptist has swirling through his mind before we'll learn in Luke that he gets beheaded. That's all he has. In prison. Is he the one or should we be expecting somebody else? Because this isn't the way that I thought it was supposed to be. And Jesus is telling me Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4. And then he says, blessed is the one who does not stumble or fall away on account of me. My 
kids aren't coming to church. Blessed is the one who does not stumble or fall away on account of me. And my good friends have drifted from God. Blessed is the one who does not stumble and fall away on account of me. And people I love have just seemed to abandon the faith. Blessed is the one who does not stumble and fall away on account of me. Because it wasn't supposed to go this way. A small group was a ride or die. Our kids were supposed to be groomed and raised up to be elders and leaders. And there's this moment where every one of us, with our own predictive expectations of how we thought our life was going to go, has to sit and hold that in front of the one true God and wrestle with that. What my spiritual director has been teaching me is how to learn to differentiate between our anticipation and our expectation and the good desire. Because sometimes they can just get kind of muddled together in some sense of entanglement. And you've heard me say this, is that whatever pain and angst is, is just the distance or gap between our expectation and reality. And for some of us, we have these expectations on our life. There are these expectations on church, expectations on people, expectations even on God. And then when God doesn't play our game and doesn't play to our predictive expectations, for many of us, we're like, should I be expecting something else? And then so beautifully, beautifully, Jesus, Jesus makes John live in the tension. The one who basically was like the leader of tension back in that day, when he was like, don't go to the temple, come out to me in the wilderness. And I just literally eat honey and locusts. I'm dressed up in camel, like, which just irritates sensitive skin. I have long hair. I don't drink. I am just loud. I'm obnoxious. The religious leaders can't stand me. I, I'm telling them what they need to tell the people. I'm saying it, and I'm calling people to repentance, and, and what he was calling them is to actually look inside and prepare their hearts for what Christ wanted to do, and Jesus now reflects that back onto him. Any of you wrestling today with predictive expectation? Some area, maybe financially, maybe in your career, maybe as you enter in the second half of life, maybe as you look at your, your kids or grandkids, maybe in some situation where you're like, it didn't go the way that I thought it would go. Anyone? And hear the words from the text, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. And some, sometimes that's, that's like, that's all you get. <laughs> it's like a sentence. And then, then in the text, I don't know if you saw this, then John's disciples bounce to go back to John. And that's when Jesus goes, can I tell you about John? He's so special. There's actually nobody, nobody who is greater than him. He's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And John's disciples don't get to hear that and go tell that to him. Well, he said that, but he also affirmed you. He just has to live in that tension. And for me, many times, I've had to just sit back and just imagine myself a prisoner in a cell and have to be wrestling with what J to the B is wrestling with and just simply go, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. But then Jesus changes. He like, he changes the scene. He goes from predictive expectation, and he finds himself going to a Pharisee's house. And this, this is where expectations get really wild. Because when you see in Luke chapter 7, 
Jesus is, is saying something about John the Baptist, about how great he is, but then he, he, he has this amazing line where he says, yet, in verse 28, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And he's about to show you someone who would be considered least in the kingdom of God in those days, but is actually profoundly great. Look what it says in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, the book of John calls it pure nard, which is just an absolute fun phrase to say. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Now, what's amazing is that this story we find in Matthew, we find in, in Mark, we find in John. Some scholars say that they're all the same stories. Some say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the same stories, and that John's a different story. But whatever it is, we know that this woman's name is Mary. Even though it doesn't say it here, if you kind of look at Matthew and Mark, her name is Mary. Same thing is true in the book of John. Her name is Mary. Now, what's amazing about this story is you have Jesus who had been eating with tax collectors, who were the most hated people of that day, and sinners, people who didn't play by the purity laws, and all of a sudden, now Jesus actually is invited to a Pharisee's house. Will he go? And this is someone who actually is about anyone and everyone. And so he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he actually eats with the religious leaders. Some would say it's a trap. But Jesus walks in, and the scriptures say that he comes into the house, and they recline at a table. Now, whenever you would eat... Back then, there weren't like chairs and stools. You would have a, a lower table. You'd have a cushion, and you would rest basically on with your left arm and your feet out, and you would eat like this. It's kind of what you would do. Just kind of eat, maybe sit up every once in a while. But the idea of reclining was this, which makes a terrible calendar uh, photo of Fabio. But, like, that's, that's kind of what we think, like, random pictures, right? Now, now, here's the truth. All of a sudden, you have this woman. Let's say Mary, Mary of Bethany. Some say Mary Magdalene. Like, let's just say this woman walks in. And she walks into this house. And she recognizes something. She recognizes something has gone on. And all of a sudden, Simon, who we know from Matthew and Mark, was a leper. Who probably has his own kind of trauma from being someone on the outside. Now watches a woman come forward and look at Jesus' feet. And begins to break out an alabaster jar. Which would have been basically like a year's wages of perfume. Breaks it open begins to wash his feet, begins to let down her hair, and hair was like the symbol of dignity, and she just loses it. Martin Luther calls the tears, she, he calls the tears heart water. All of a sudden, it's like her heart water just begins to come out. 
And she just begins to wash his feet. But here's the picture I want you to see. is of Simon the Pharisee. Because I imagine there's other religious leaders there. And there's other important people there. And he's probably going, man, I invited this guy into my house. And he's so caught up in what other people will say. And he's probably so in his brain going, I wonder what Jesus is going to say. This guy has been healing people. He's been like teaching on the Sabbath, which has been ticking everybody off. He's been, been talking about fasting and people have been losing their ever-loving mind. He's been healing people. He's been forgiving sins. And I, I think in some ways, Simon begins to manage the expectations of the room and he forgets who's actually in the room. And what's incredible is you have this moment where he finds himself just sitting there and he just is watching and all of a sudden a woman who just barges in. And a rabbi of Jesus' kind of, kind of style, his teaching, I mean it would have been like rabbinic TV, TMZ, like people would have known he was in town. They would have wanted to see, maybe, maybe they were eating outside because it was the Mediterranean, maybe they were eating inside, we don't know. We just know that they're reclining on the table and this woman must have been standing there, but if she's sinful, she shouldn't be inside that house, but she's standing there and all of a sudden she recognizes that nobody has actually showed him the honor he deserves and she goes, I'm just going to do it. And then Simon begins to think to himself, mm, 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 mm. if this guy really was a rabbi, if he really is who he says he is, he would know that this woman is so sinful. He would know who's touching him. He wouldn't let this unclean person come close to him. I think it's really, really remarkable because I think in our culture, I think it gets really, really easy for us to manage other people. To manage their expectations. Keep them a little happy. 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 And all of that real estate, precious real estate of our heart and our mind takes our focus of Jesus. And I think for some of us, we wrestle with predictive expectations. God, I thought my life was going to be like this. But I think some of us in actual real time, we don't struggle with predictive expectations. We struggle with carrying responsibility for everybody else's expectations. And let's just be really, really honest. That's exhausting. If, if, you, if you've never experienced this, just go talk to someone who has to run primary duties on a holiday, cooking, cleaning, and actually making sure as the entire family comes, how hard sometimes that can be, the pressure. And I think for some of us, we want to experience the reality of Christ in the moment, but all of our headspace is, are they happy? Are they happy? And we feel responsible for everybody else. How many of you wrestle with just managing others' expectations? It's exhausting, isn't it? And then sometimes we get frustrated because then we watch someone who doesn't seem to have a care in the world, who just walks in and just delights in Jesus. And we're like, really? <laughs> like, I'm the one that's actually providing this whole meal, and you're like, you're like oh, you can be so free. Fantastic. Fantastic. 
And I think sometimes then we get really, really bitter, and it shows where our heart is at. We get frustrated. Why, why is it so easy for that person? Why does it seem so difficult? Like, I can't seem to break through this fourth barrier to access what the Spirit is all about, what the presence of God is all about. Yesterday was uh, spring training, uh, the beginning for the Cubs. They won yesterday against the Giants, which was fantastic. I don't think we're going to be that good this year, um, but it's, it's okay. It's still the Cubs. We won in 2016. We now have 101 more years to go till the next one. So, but here's, here's what I need you to know is, you know, the Wrigley family, they bought the Cubs. And then the Wrigley family bought Catalina Island. And I, I, as a kid growing up in California, I used to go to Catalina all the time. You go out to Long Beach, and then you'd, draw, you'd like basically take this ferry out to Avalon, which was basically the, the capital city of, of Catalina, pretty much the only city. And, and the way that you would get there back in the day was through the U.S. or the SS Avalon. And that was run by this Wilmington ship. And they had a massive W as their logo. And the Wrigley family was like, I like that massive W. So I'm going to take it. And the Wrigley family took it. In the 1930s, I think 38, um, many sports scholars would like to say, is when they began to kind of institute this whole idea of the W flag. And because people who would ride the elevated trains and so many day games because the Cubs, and to their credit, <clears throat> during World War II, decided not to use the steel to actually build lights they gave that steel away to fight Germany. They kept this whole idea of 105 or 120 day games. So they gave the steel away, but they wanted a way to, as people were coming home from work on the elevated trains, to know if the Cubs won or lost. And so they would put a massive W flag above the scoreboard, and the Cubs would just, the people would drive by and be like, oh yeah, the Cubs won. Oh, but they also, if the Cubs lost, will put, an L flag, and be like, ah, oh, the Cubs lost again. Ah, oh, the Cubs lost again. Oh, the Cubs won. The Cubs lost. The Cubs won. The Cubs lost. You can just have this moment. In 2006, the, the Cubs played, August 6, 2006, the Cubs played the Arizona Diamondbacks. It was a doubleheader, and it was the first time that we had seen where there was a W flag and an L flag on the same day. They won one game. They lost one game. I've been thinking about this a lot because I imagine Simon, the leper, who is a Pharisee, who has religious uniqueness and, and, and insight, and, he, and he's, I think he's genuinely curious, and I think really, really wants is, is a moment at the table that can be a win for so many. That could be a win for Jesus. That could be a win for the other Pharisees. That could be a win for the city. That could be a win for the people who are looking on. But he's like so focused on managing everybody else's expectations that he actually loses. And I, I've been thinking about this for so long because my counselor was asking me, Steve, how are you really doing? And this is, just kind of came out of my mouth. I said, man, I feel like it's been a long time since I've gotten a W, since I've actually flown the W flag. I feel like it's been a little bit of just a season of just like L after L after L after L after L. And I, 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 I haven't had very many seasons where it's been L after L after L said my junior high dating career, but that's another sermon. But I, like, I, I have these moments where I, I, I found myself going, like, how do you learn to actually do this? And I think as I started to kind of sift and sort through this, it's because I found myself really, really connected to Simon, trying to manage 
people's expectations outside the church, in my neighborhood, in my family, my family in Arizona, my family in Michigan, what people think, people inside this church, people in Rockford, staff, elders, all of that. And you can get swirling around managing expectations, managing expectations, and you can just find yourself going, I'm trying to keep these people happy, keep this thing, keep this, keep this, keep this, keep this, keep this, keep this, keep this. And you find yourself going, that's exhausting too. Anyone feel like they just haven't gotten a W lately? Yeah. But then you have this picture of this just amazing woman. Some say she was a prostitute. We don't know. Some, some, some say she's Mary Magdalene, like I said, who will learn in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, ends up becoming one of the greatest supporters of Jesus and his ministry. We don't know. But what I do know is that this woman recognizes that Jesus wasn't honored and somehow fights through all of what she probably is so beautifully unaware of, what people might think of her or say about her or tweet about her or write about her or talk about about her, doesn't care because they've already done that before. All she cares about is showcasing a level of honor and worth to the one who actually sees her. So I want to just read just the remaining part of this, make a couple of observations, and then lead us into a time of response. It says this in Luke chapter 8, it continues. It says this. When this man, Simon, thinks this, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? So 500 denarii is basically a year and a half, 18 months back in that day. 50 is about a month. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Yet you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And look at the other guests. They began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I've come to realize something. Jesus kind of offers up a beautiful little math formula. He says 500 denarii. 50 denarii. Yep, yep, we get it, we get it, we get it. But here's the point, here's the point. Jesus says, forgiven little, worship little. Forgiven much, worship much. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at somebody else and go, man, they're sinful. Their life is so much worse than mine so easy for us to just begin to either judge to look at somebody as less than 
last time you looked at your own sin? When's the last time you looked at your own life and said, man, a place is where you are actually living less than God's best. Man, I can, I can look at a lot of different situations and I can try and carry responsibility for a lot of other people trying to manage their happiness without having to actually sit with my own sin. And you know what confession is. Police officers will tell you this. Pastors will tell you this. Therapists will tell you this. Lawyers will tell you this. Spiritual directors will tell you this. Most people confess to what they already know the other person to believe to be true. And that's not confession. Confession's when you go first. When you actually sit and you go, man, I, I'm an arrogant, prideful. I, I have ambition that's just so out of alignment with the way of Jesus or workaholism. For some, it's, it's, it's some sense of addictive pattern be a plethora of them for some of us like we grew up in a situation and season where we often didn't hear the word sin so we began to look at other people but never actually got to a point where we could look and to ourselves and go where are the places in our life in our actual life that are truly less than and I, I don't I don't even look at this from a place of shame I don't I just look at it from a place of truth. That every single day, I choose something other than God. I choose me. I choose my desire. I choose my brokenness. I choose my pain. I choose my trauma. I choose my dysfunction. I choose my agenda. And then there are these moments, there are these moments where you just have to sit and you have to look and you go, oh man, this woman just recognized the religious leaders, they couldn't save her. They didn't even want her in the room. The system didn't want her. If she was a prostitute, every man just took advantage of her. And the only place that she felt safe and seen was in the presence of Jesus. And here's the truth. My predictive expectations are at hand. All I can do is come back to the feet of Jesus. When I'm managing other people's expectations and that is out of hand, all I can do is come back to the feet of Jesus. And I, I, I had a friend, Jeff Matson, he goes here. He texted me last, last night, super late. He just said, I got something for you. And he said, surrender equals W. And I was like, that's going in the message. Because here's the truth. Surrender is what that woman did. She surrendered and was able to consent to the reality of who she actually is, but even greater than that, who he actually is. And I think for us today, the easiest thing inside of us is to channel energy towards judgment and bitterness and frustration and angst and being over-responsible and over-serving and overwhelmed and going and going and going. But the more beautiful piece is actually to surrender and allow the God who created everything to see you, to know you, to love you, to forgive you, to recognize, to have a moment where he left heaven to come here. And I, I, I'll tell you this straight up, just, just for a moment. 
I know it's not Good Friday, and I know it's not Easter yet, but man, just, just have a moment. If you could actually hold the sin, and if I had some sense of silver bullet just to take that away, maybe it's image, maybe it's lust, maybe it's pornography, maybe I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some kind of temptation, struggle, debt. Maybe it's just, just like running to all of these different vices. I don't know what it is. I don't really care, to be honest. What I really care about is that this thing would also be surrendered at the foot of the cross to the one who came for you. Can you imagine that? Not just that it happened someday and we watched it in some chosen series, which is awesome, or some Mel Gibson movie, whatever. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying for you. And I've had these moments where I've just had to sit and for so long, for so long, it was like, yeah, yeah, I know it's true, I know it's true, I know it's true, I know it's true, I know it's true. But am I actually surrendering to that for me? And when you get to that point, that's when that heart water starts coming out. That's when you don't actually care what somebody thinks. That's when you can just find yourself just going, yeah, I'm broken and beautiful. And in need of a rescuer and a savior and grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And there's no good sermon that I can do that can earn me heaven. There's no great staying. There's no moment that I could show up in a hospital that could earn the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that every one of us, not every one of us, every part of me needs. And I don't say it with shame or shade towards myself. I just say it with a consent to reality. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I'm just going to invite you right now. If you've got predictive expectations, maybe you just need to lay them at the foot of the cross. Maybe just hear the Spirit of God just say, blessed is the one who does not fall away, does not stumble on account of me. Maybe that's your breath prayer this week. Or maybe for some of you, you're just managing everybody's expectations, trying to keep everybody happy, managing the own pressures you put upon yourself that's just not actually fair or possible. And you just got to surrender that at the foot of the cross. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe you just got to actually find within you the place that is actually less than. Not in other people. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. We don't have time for that in here. Sit with that. And just imagine the God of all creation going, I'm coming for you. And I'd do it again. And I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it on Tuesday, and I'm going to do it on Wednesday, and I'm going to do it on Thursday. I'll do it on Friday. I'll do it multiple times in the day that you easily forget. I will keep doing it with no regrets because that is how much I love you. So just close your eyes. Can you imagine? Just hear these words. Jesus on the cross.